few years ago when the Syrian immigration crisis was at its peak in terms of public discussion and effects on European countries and some of the debate around whether or not to let <coughs> Syrian refugees into Canada and if so, how many of them. When all of this was going on, if you followed, like many of you I'm sure did, the news reports at the time, you basically heard responses to this crisis framed in two ways. So the first way was that you had open borders, bleeding heart liberals wanting to welcome with open arms everybody who needed a place in a Christ-like gesture of brotherhood. Pretty much, okay? Um, we must do so because we are good, tolerant, loving Christians who support the stranger and see ourselves in the stranger's plight and therefore must welcome them into our hearts, into our homes, into our countries, into our lives, into our economies, into our cities. Just, we must welcome them with open arms. And on the other hand, you had the nationalist bigots, as usual, okay? The right-wing, far-right, nationalist, immigrant, hating, nobody allowed, everybody must go away, xenophobic, get far away. I'm talking about this is how it was presented, okay? I'm not saying that this is an accurate characterization, really, of either group. But the alternatives that you were most often presented with in the media were, on one hand, as I say, the bleeding heart, um, open borders, open arms, accept everybody. And on the other hand, the cold shoulder, nationalist, xenophobic, fear-mongering uh, haters of strangers or, you know, people with a phobia of strangers. So at the time that this was going on, I was studying something that I thought offered a third way. And you'd be surprised, possibly, to know that I was studying an old book by an old philosopher. So you may think that immigrants contribute, and to a certain extent, obviously, you're right, and there are studies that quantify all of these variables. Well, you may think that, that immigrants contribute to our economies, to our societies. Obviously, that's indisputably the case, properly interpreted. The question is what happens when you have a large number of refugees or immigrants who carry with them a moral code, if they do, that is not compatible or not obviously compatible with the domestic moral code. And if you believe that the goal of the legal system is to, let's say, win over the hearts and minds of the citizenry to a certain extent, okay, yes, it, it has the negative function of keeping us from each other's throats, but it also has the positive function of instilling basic moral habits, things that today we call values. Now, it's probably more illuminating to talk about them as habits than as values or as principles than as values, but nevertheless, um, there's a similarity in the meaning. So Plato's Laws finds a middle way. The most, the most interesting thing about it is this. It's not a replacement for your own thoughts about the immigration crisis, immigration policy. You still presumably would have to have some interest in more detailed, more modern economic analysis, statistics about the actual impact and so on. It's not a replacement for any of that. But it, Plato's Laws in its discussion of 
where the new residents of the colony should come from, it does have a few positive contributions to make to the way that we think about immigration crises. Because it reminds us of the moral function of the law in building um, not just a, a legal community, but a moral community. It does examine the fact that it becomes harder to assimilate foreign groups who share their own moral identities in a way that conflicts or may conflict with the domestic legal system. Um, but it also shows that easy, supposedly easy assimilation of atomized individuals has its own drawbacks as well. There's less of a unity. So if you bring citizens in from everywhere and you try to assimilate them to domestic moral code, you may have some success in doing that, but the unity will not be, the political and moral unity will be less strong than it would be in the other case. So you have these con you have a conflict between moral unity and competing moral allegiances and so on. His political philosophy is not liberal democracy. So it's a different moral universe to liberal democracy. Is it fascism? It's not fascism because it's not a, it's not, so fascism is a political philosophy of right Hegelianism. So you have to have at least Hegel's philosophy of the state to have the philosophy of fascism. Well, Hegel's philosophy of the state is a modern philosophy and it's very much distinct from Plato's philosophical development of the city. The city is not the state. So many of you who study philosophy in university or who study political science in university take a class on Plato and may have heard that the Republic is about the ideal city state. Well, I agree with my first teachers on this point that you should banish that thought from your mind. The Republic is definitely not about the ideal city state because the term ideal and everything that it implies is a non-platonic term. Plato does not operate with the notion of the ideal. So he cannot have something like the ideal city-state. That's number one. Number two, the city-state, the very term city-state, is not the same as the polis or the city as it's developed in the Republic. There's no such thing as the state in Plato's Republic. Even the translation of the title of the Greek text as Republic is misleading. So whenever we study political concepts, political terminology, the development of political ideas through time, don't be misled into believing that it's as easy as taking our modern political vocabulary and using it to describe and to judge pre-modern authors like Plato, for example, the correct operation is to try to see the concepts that are native to Plato and possibly use platonic concepts to criticize modern ones, at least to understand the platonic concepts well enough to be able to do a side-by-side -side comparison. So it's a mistake to take the notion of an ideal and read it into Plato. Because Plato had, does talk about the ideas, but what it, the ideas and the ideal are philosophically different universes. It's like um, it's two different languages. They sound similar, but they mean very different things. 
Same with city-state. What the state is and what the city are in political philosophy are radically different things. And when you hear the word city and you think about the city of Toronto, that obviously also is not quite what city means in Plato. All of this is to say that we stand to benefit, as I've said already in my previous videos, by studying texts, in this case I'm referring to Plato's laws, and trying to see what light they throw on our modern issues. I picked a simple example, the example of immigration, finding a middle way between open borders, bleeding heart liberals, and supposedly cold shoulder nationalist racist bigots, one group that wants to invite everybody in, the other group that wants to kick everybody out. And in fact, a moderate platonic political philosophy would support intelligent limitations on immigration, not primarily for economic reasons, but for reasons of moral community, moral cohesion. So many right-wing political commentators argue that we're taking too many immigrants from countries that have different moral codes than our own, different moral traditions, different religious backgrounds. And their critics accuse them of being phobic towards the other religions or having a hatred towards the other races. If we start with the question, aren't we all the same? In what sense do different political communities have different moral codes and how is that related to the law? Well, I bring you some very good news. There is a masterpiece of political philosophical literature that has stood the test of millennia called The Laws of Plato. And you wouldn't have to read far past the opening pages of that work to encounter this debate and this issue of moral community and of different moral orientations. Let me give you an example. The very first line of that work is the Athenian stranger addressing his colleagues, I mean, addressing these other old men with whom he's going to be discussing the nature of the law, and he asks them, who do you say is the author of your laws, men or God? Now, if we update men or the gods, a god, some god, if we update that into our modern terminology, he's asking them, do you ascribe the origin of your legal code to a divine source, as for example, adherence of various theological traditions known to us in our time do? Or do you operate with a secular, man-made code of law? Do you ascribe the origin of your law to man or to God? Today, that is a dividing line between secular and theological governments. And it should be a matter of great curiosity to some of you that it's the opening question, the opening line, the opening issue of Plato's political work par excellence, as Leo Strauss once referred to it. Moreover, in the early conversations that the Athenian stranger has with his Cretan and um, other old Greek friends, interlocutors, so again, this Athenian stranger goes to the Southern Greek cities having a conversation with these two old men about the nature of the law uh, in each of their own Greek political communities. The issue comes up very soon, so you wouldn't have to read past the first 10 pages to get to this type of discussion. What 
is your law oriented toward? What does it strive for? So today, we could answer that in a Canadian or in an American context in Canadian peace, order, and good government. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, something like that. Increasing prosperity. That's approximately some ways that we would answer the question in a North American context. Well, the dialogue that unfolds in those early pages of the laws has, for example, this answer. Our lawgiver has received our laws and crafted our laws um, with the God for the sake for the sake of victory in war. Victory in war. That's what the law has guided us to do, to become great soldiers, great military men and women, to be victorious in battle. And the Athenian stranger who has, he's not Socrates, he's not named Socrates in this particular dialogue, but he has Socratic, Socratic characteristics. He engages his partners in dialogue in a little bit of back and forth. He asks them to elaborate on what they think the purpose of war is. Why war? Why victory in war? Do we want to be victors in war for the sake of victory in war itself? Do we just, are we soldiers for the sake of being soldiers? Or do we want to be victorious in war for the sake of peace? And what does peace mean to us? If the lawgiver was genuinely wise, surely he would have thought these issues through. And therefore, these patriotic citizens who are also pious, who have respect to their legal codes and respect for their lawgiver, they should be able to give a rational defense of the true meaning of a legal code oriented towards victory in war. And it is a intellectual journey well worth undertaking to read at least the first five to ten pages of the laws. And it'll become clear when I said that you have different political communities oriented to different moral ideals. If one political community is oriented toward victory in war and their highest ideal is the soldier who slays on the battlefield, and another political community is oriented toward the peace that follows victory, and what peace that follows victory? Are they, is their highest human type the merchant? Is their highest human type the artist? Is their highest human type the poet, the philosopher? So a moral community is formed when a group of people have under the guidance of their legal codes and other moral traditions, for example, their poets, when they have a notion of a highest human type. So today you have all of the time left-wingers, bourgeoisie and right-wingers duking it out on the cultural warfare mimetic battlefield, sometimes on the streets, but mostly online in these culture wars, duking it out over their vision of the highest human type. So the highest human type for one group might be the strong, beautiful, but again, even the notion of beauty differs here, the strong, beautiful, masculine, powerful, protector, you see, something like a military ideal, a noble military ideal. In the best case, in my view, coupled with the acknowledgement 
that what makes such persons truly outstanding is not only the virtues of bravery and courage, sacrifice, justice, and the rest of the noble virtues, but also, and perhaps especially, wisdom. The left has their own version or set of versions of the highest moral type. And there are those, let's say, in the middle, for whom it's the private, non-public individual who minds his own business, consumes moderately, doesn't annoy a lot of other people, has a respectable, tolerable fear of death, wants to live long and comfortably. So for the most part, traditionally, that view of the comfortable self-preservation has been the ideal for one group and has been a disgusting, rotten sham for some other groups who think that the life of the harmless, a life of harmless, comfortable self-preservation is unbecoming and unworthy of the heights of human excellence and human dignity. All of this is to say, Lola, in response to your question, in what sense are there different moral communities? Aren't we all the same? In what sense are the different moral communities? Aren't we all the same? We take our bearing and how we want to live and what we think is highest by people are oriented toward different stars. You see, they're oriented towards different principles, whether they know it or not. And one of the exciting tasks about philosophy is to unearth the principles that people implicitly have as their moral guides, to compare them with the alternative moral guides, and to try to make rational sense of which is the best possible life. Is the best way of life the military life, the life of a statesman, the life of comfortable private self-preservation, the life of philosophy? So Socrates, although he is reputable for his bravery in, in war, according to Plato and according to other people who wrote about him, um, he, didn't have any, he didn't have any prized possessions. He wasn't a man of great means and great wealth. He was ugly physically. People loved him. His lovers loved him passionately, but they didn't love him for his physical beauty. They definitely didn't love him because of, because of everything that he was showing off on Instagram, because of all of his great, you know what I'm saying? Like he didn't have a lot of, he wasn't showy in the sense that check out my new, check out my new ride. (laughs) People loved him for the beauty of his soul, for the beauty of his soul. And so much of what we've inherited as a civilization is a reflection, however distant, however pale, through through however many layers and under however many obscuring clouds of the ideal of Socrates' beautiful soul. But of course, there were those philosophers who saw Socrates as a sick, pathetic, neurotic, and they championed, you know, Socrates, they saw Socrates and Jesus as men to be overcome by something stronger, something more beautiful, something nobler, something more powerful. Of course, I have in mind some German philosophers you may know of without me needing to name their names. All of this presents to us a rich 
set of options about the different ways that people can... Alexander Dugan once used the phrase in this context that I think is very apt. Hierarchy of national heroes. So people arrange their hierarchy of national heroes differently. For somebody, the hockey player is at the top of the list and the philosopher is at the bottom. And for somebody else, sportsmen belong on the hierarchy of national heroes, but not at the top. They don't occupy nearly the same stratosphere as poets, philosophers, mathematicians, and so on. Well, that's how you have different moral and political communities. You have different ideals of human excellence, different behaviors regarded as expressions of human excellence, different end goals for human existence. Somebody thinks we're best off when everything's level. Somebody thinks we're best off when everything is in its right place on the hierarchy of national heroes and the hierarchy of human excellences. And this difference in opinion forms different moral communities. And it becomes difficult to integrate foreigners who have one deeply shared set of moral commitments into a local moral community that is fundamentally distinct. Even though at some level, as you say, aren't we all the same? Yes and no. Harmony of opposites. There's no philosophy without the coincidence of opposites. On one hand, we're all the same, but that sameness has to take into account the very real, very deep, extremely significant fundamental differences. Which means I just have to add this one thought. I have to add it. If you focus on the differences only, you're excessively in the realm of conflict. If you focus on the unity only, you are also one-sided, partial, and bound to make a mistake in your analysis and in your execution. That's why sometimes the most humanitarian thing that you can do is to recognize the partial political character of human existence appreciate the limits of human moral and political communities and not to pave the way to hell with your good intentions, not to let your view of the perfect be the enemy of the good, but to draw on the wisdom of millennia in fashioning a politically moderate, politically sensible moral community that can make sense of its place in the world without either letting everybody in or kicking everybody out. I have to acknowledge something. So I'm recommending the reading of Plato's Laws as a resource for learning about some political principles and ideas that are relevant to us today, but in a way that we're not used to seeing them treated. It would be remiss of me not to mention that although we have a defense of free speech, and I have made on this channel a defense of academic inquiry in the universities, Plato... Uh, Plato's characters are at times in favor of censorship. He's not a champion of utter and absolute free speech in political life. Although, to be fair, there's a difference between free speech in political life and free speech at the university as an institution that fosters learning. Now, there is a 
comic poet, Aristophanes, who wrote a play called The Clouds. And in the play called The Clouds, Socrates has his own little school, university, think tank, think pot. And in this school or think tank, he engages in totally free inquiry, totally free inquiry. But what happens, as I'll tell you in another video, is as the author of this play depicts, depicts Socrates ends up teaching people to make any argument that they want to make very successfully. A young student comes to him to learn how to become a skilled, uh, to learn how to become skilled in argumentation. His dad sent him there to learn to become skilled in argumentation because his dad has a lot of debts he incurred betting on horses and he wants his son to go represent him in court to try to get these debts off his neck. So he sends his son to Socrates to school. Socrates teaches him how to be a master arguer. The kid goes back to his dad and everything's kind of topsy-turvy. So the kid gets annoyed at his dad and he strikes him. He hits him. Dad said, how dare you do such a thing? And applying the skills that he learned from Socrates, this young man starts saying, well, didn't you used to hit me when I was a child because you thought that you could teach me and educate me and correct me? Well, as a result of my studying with Socrates, I've become morally and intellectually superior to you. And I'm now going to employ the same means that you employed against me for your benefit, your education. His dad is furious, as most dads or all dads probably would be in this situation. So he goes and he burns down Socrates' school. I mention that to you because I said that Plato, Plato's characters to a certain extent support censorship. They support political censorship. Well, this play about Socrates' think tank called the Thinkpot in the play called The Clouds by Aristophanes gives you both a situation where, where Socrates allowed for free inquiry but paid a price, a heavy price, for having allowed for free inquiry. Namely, he upset the older generation that came and burned down his house. Well, in other texts, like in the Republic, there's the notion that we need to censor some speech for the sake of the cohesion of the moral community. So, for example, he says, one of the, it's Socrates who says in the Republic, um, in the course of one of the conversations that he's having with his interlocutors, if a brilliant poet, a brilliant poet, comes from another city to our city and wants to share his poetry with our city, we will, if we're acting intelligently as political, as founders of political communities and as rulers of political communities, recognizing the importance of poetry, we might modernize this to an extent and say, recognizing the importance of media, mass media, for example. He says, we will have to sit down with this poet, ask him to show us his work, assess whether or not it coheres with our own moral principles. And if it doesn't, say to him, this is a masterpiece and you're clearly very brilliant, but there's no way that we can allow this into our moral ecosystem. It's like what happened in your university. To an extent, it's what happened in my university. 
And to an extent, it's what happens anytime there is an act of moral censorship. So on one hand, you can believe in the importance of free debate, free discussion, free inquiry, at least in a university context. But since I've been encouraging you in this and other videos to consider learning from Plato, have to acknowledge that he has persuasive arguments in favor of censorship. When in the laws, he has this conversation about the nature of the law with these two old men, and you realize the necessity that it's a small group of people, there's only three of them, and that they're old and distinguished and not young and immature. The idea is that when you reason openly about the law, you risk undermining it, undermining confidence in it, undermining faith in it. So to be overly, you could put it this way, critical thought is valuable, but it may have a corrosive effect on the objects of criticism. And if you think as a matter of political wisdom or political expedience or prudence, that to have a corrosive effect on your political institutions and political morality is a poor decision to make. It's a poor... So from the point of view of the statesman, on one hand, yes, you want to foster, to a certain extent, uh, intelligence, but not necessarily critical intelligence. You don't want everybody always undermining and doubting the law because it's part of the nature and function of the law to be something that we relate to with a degree of reverence and piety. In other words, in the laws, the discussion is not totally free and they wouldn't go around saying to every young man and woman, you must exert all of your critical thinking abilities to call our politicians and our leaders and our laws and our customs and our institutions into question. In fact, the laws is a work that develops an elaborate code of law. So, for example, if you read this work, Plato's Laws, you'll see that they actually discuss legislation, not abstractly and philosophically, but concretely. How should we pun what should we call a crime and how should we punish a crime? All the way to the point that the Athenian stranger legislates about, about marriage, about property, about divorce, about what you can own, about what you can't own. Okay, you can everybody's given an initial allotment of property, which they can increase, but only up to four times so that nobody ever has less than the original allotment or more than four times the original allotment to keep poverty and wealth within a moderate range. The Athenian stranger legislates about the exercise that a pregnant woman should do for the benefit of her baby and many other things, many other things. In other words, it's not all abstract philosophy. It's a concrete code of law. And one of the institutions that they developed for their colony is called the Nocturnal Council. And the Nocturnal Council con consists, without getting into all the details, of a young, brilliant person and an experienced elder, not just one, but in pairs, a group of, okay, a group of elders and a group of young, brilliant minds. You could think like distinguished university professors on one hand and Silicon Valley, I don't know, super geniuses on the other or something like that together who have passed some rigorous set of tests and who in the cover of night, so to speak, can philosophize freely about their laws in a way that the ordinary citizen shouldn't be permitted to do. 
And again, the reason the ordinary citizen shouldn't be permitted to do it is because constant doubt has a corrosive effect on the moral cohesion of the political community. And Plato's analysis was that that's a bad thing. He might be right about that. He might be wrong about that. He's no dummy. So it's worth considering his arguments. He lives on forever. His ideas live on forever. He's not dead. He's immortal. You can learn from the study of the classics, as I've said before. In this case, from the ten, read five, ten pages of Plato, of Plato's laws. I'll have to go over it on another occasion. So on my website, michaelmillerman.ca, there is, if you go to the research section of my website, there's a table of contents that I did for Plato's laws, a 20-page detailed table of contents. If you don't want to read the book, browse the table of contents and just see the richness of this text. Thomas Pengel, an American political scientist, a brilliant, distinguished scholar, once wrote, if I'm not mistaken, that he doesn't know of a single contemporary moral or political principle or idea that is not subject to profound and searching analysis in Plato's laws. It is an outstanding masterpiece that belongs as much as any text that you might love or hate to the Western tradition, to Western civilization. And to bring it back to my initial comments, at least if you still think in terms of either open-armed liberal policies that welcome everybody or cold-hearted nationalistic neo-Nazi policies that want to kick everybody out, at least read that brief discussion in the laws about the benefits and drawbacks of bringing in foreigners into your country who have or do not have too much of a shared foreign moral outlook. 